This is December 6th, 2020. And with our uh, annual ceremony in honor of the Buddha's enlightenment this coming Tuesday, I'm going to make this Taisho about the Buddha, Siddhartha, and his enlightenment. I'm going to start with uh, reading. I'll be, I'll be reading from a book called, the title is simply Buddha. By the way, uh, I'm told that the way it's, that word is pronounced in India is uh, like Buddha, Buddha. But rather than being precise about the original correct pronunciation, I'm just going to do what uh, we do as English speakers, just say Buddha. <clears throat> and the author of this book is Karen Armstrong. I think if you if you want to want to uh, acquire some knowledge about the Buddha and his legendary uh, journey and enlightenment, um, and also about his teaching. You, you really, maybe you can't do better. You cannot do better than this book. Uh, she's a magnificent writer, Karen Armstrong. She's written about other religions too. Uh, but I will start by reading uh, a lengthy passage uh, to sort of, um, well, you'll hear. Uh, she makes the point that uh, what we know of the Buddha, as far as his personality, is, is his, uh, the specifics about him as a person, is has always been very limited, and that's sort of in line with the Indian uh, tradition at the time. <clears throat> I'll just read from this. She's saying that the biography of the Buddha has challenges. The Gospels present Jesus, for example, as a distinct personality with idiosyncrasies, special turns of phrase, moments of profound emotion and struggle, irascibility and terror, have been preserved. This is not true of the Buddha, however, who was presented as a type rather than as an individual. In his discourses, we find none of the sudden quips, thrusts, and witticisms that delight us in the speech of Jesus or Socrates. He speaks as the Indian philosophical tradition demands, solemnly, formally, and impersonally. After his enlightenment, we get no sense of his likes and dislikes, his hopes and fears, moments of desperation, elation, or intense striving. What remains is an impression of a transhuman serenity, self-control, a nobility that has gone beyond the superficiality of personal preference and a profound equanimity. The Buddha is often compared to non-human beings, to animals, trees, or plants, not because he is subhuman or inhumane, but because he has utterly transcended the selfishness that most of us regard as inseparable from our condition. The Buddha, she says, was trying to find a new way of being human.
a little more. In the West, we prize individualism and self-expression, but this can easily degenerate into mere self-promotion. We all know that. What we find in Gotama is a complete and breathtaking self-abandonment. He would not have been surprised to learn that the, the scriptures do not present him as a fully rounded personality, but he would have said that our concept of personality was a dangerous delusion. This is what we're up against in this country, where personality, if not celebrity, and self-promotion and preferences and choices and uh, being special uh, is all but overwhelming. The pressure to uh, to adhere to that kind of idea. <clears throat> it, a big uh, turning point in the the Buddha's Siddhartha, Siddhartha. Siddhartha at that time when he before his enlightenment he was just Siddhartha Gotama. But a big turning point was when he first came upon an old person, a sick person, and a dead person. He also then encountered a monk. Uh, but let's just look at these first three. Uh, we can understand this uh, old person, a sick person, and a dead person. Uh, it says he first came upon them. Well, of course, we're not to take that literally. Uh, he was 29 years old. Um, no, actually, he was 23 when he came upon these sites. So it could not have been the first time he ever saw a sick person or a de or an old person or maybe even a dead person. But like so many things in, uh, in, in the world of legends, uh, it, it, it really means it's the first time that it really affected him. It's the first time he could see that this is our lot as human beings. Well, as really as any, any thing with a body, any, any creature, uh, we are doomed to sickness or injury, aging, and eventually death. This is the first time it really hit him. There's another passage of hers that I, I'd like to read from extensively because it's so beautifully written and uh, I just have to step aside and uh, let, her, let, let her writing speak uh, what is uh, so difficult to match as far as uh, how she expresses things. She's talking about... Uh, just the same thing, our predicament, our human predicament of knowing of uh, what lies ahead of us eventually. Uh, she's referring to uh, Siddhartha um, deciding to renounce the worldly life and leave the palace. Um, and here's where she picks up the, uh, the earlier texts 
uh, give a starker version of the young man's decision. When he looked at human life, Gotama could see only a grim cycle of suffering, which began with the trauma of birth and proceeded inexorably to aging, illness, death, sorrow, and corruption. He himself was no exception to this universal rule. At present, he was young, healthy, and handsome. But whenever he reflected on the suffering that lay ahead, all the joy and confidence of youth drained out of him. His luxurious lifestyle seemed meaningless and trivial. He could not afford to feel revolted when he saw a decrepit old man or somebody who was disfigured by a loathsome illness. After all, the same fate, or something even worse, could befall him and everybody he loved. His parents, his wife, his baby son, and his friends were equally frail and vulnerable. When he clung to them and yearned tenderly toward them, he was investing emotion in what could only bring him pain. His wife would lose her beauty, and little Rahula, that's his son, could die tomorrow. To seek happiness in mortal, transitory things was not only irrational, the suffering in store for his loved ones, as well as for himself, cast a dark shadow over the present and took away all his joy in these relationships. I wonder how many people who are listening to this have gotten a taste of this. Uh, we would have no way of knowing. Uh, this is this is really, in a way, the, the wellspring, the engine of serious spiritual searching, recognizing the the impermanence of everything, the uh, our inability to hold anything and, and, and keep it secure in any fundamental way. But she goes on, let me give her another run here, the author. But why did Gotama see the world in such bleak terms? Mortality is a fact of life that is hard to bear. Human beings are the only animals who have to live with the knowledge that they will die one day, and they have always found this vision of extinction difficult to contemplate. But most of us manage to find some solace in the happiness and affection that is also part of the human experience. Some people simply bury their heads in the sand and refuse to think about the sorrow of the world. But this is an unwise course because... If we are entirely unprepared, the tragedy of life can be devastating. From the very earliest times, men and women devised religions to help them cultivate a sense that our existence has some ultimate meaning and value, despite the dispiriting evidence to the contrary. But sometimes the myths and practices of faith seem incredible, People then turn to other methods of transcending the sufferings and frustration of daily life, to art, music, sex, drugs, sport, or philosophy. Let me just pause. 
Uh, I have Roshi Kaplow on my mind uh, this morning with his own uh, tremendous uh, efforts. Uh, he talked about uh, his own kind of uh, turning point and one of the that is turning away from the ordinary world and its pleasures and he he referred to uh i think this is in uh zen merging of east and west his autobiographical account where he he mentions uh having gotten fed up with the joyless pursuit of pleasure he had been a a, a kind of an aficionado of the of art had acquired quite a collection of of uh, paintings and prints and music. Uh, he learned in this his life uh, leading up to uh, Japan, uh, the Tokyo War Crimes trials. He had uh, spent a lot of time learning about classical music. There were no recreational drugs. To speak of then nothing like now uh, but he I think I gathered he did his share of alcohol and philosophy these are all things that she's saying can be kind of band-aids or can or uh, ointments that can temporarily uh, soothe the pain of our uh, existence um, but then just to finish up, she says, we are beings who fall very easily into despair and we have to work very hard to create within ourselves a conviction that life is good, even though all around us we see pain, cruelty, sickness, and injustice. When he decided to leave home, Gotama, one might think, appeared to have lost this ability to live with the unpalatable facts of life and to have fallen prey to a profound depression. But then she says, that was not the case. Gotama had indeed become disenchanted with domestic life in an ordinary Indian household, but he had not lost hope in life itself. He was convinced that there was a solution to the puzzle of existence. In other words, he was convinced that this world, this life, such as we know it, can't be all there is. There must be something more. I'm speaking now, these are my own words, something fuller, better, something more satisfying. I think this is the the uh, the article of faith that everyone who practices Zen may or practices Zen seriously. This is what we all have in common when we come to practice. Is the the faith uh, at the time or however long it lasts the faith that there is something beyond what we can know in any ordinary way 
there's something more to the mind. Something beyond. I think for most of us, oh, I don't know, for many of us, it's not God anymore. Um, there is no God concept in Zen. So, God uh, isn't enough for many of us in Zen. But then what is? Still there's this belief, this faith that there is something, something we can know. Um, Karen Armstrong here talks, gives some historical context. This was a time 2,500 years ago in India when uh, the world of uh, the gods um, were in decline. That, the, the gods didn't have the same... Uh, people were not were losing faith in this system of, of gods and it left them a bit uh, at a loss of what else to have faith in. This was a, a period of, of, of history that uh, historians have called the Axial Age. Uh, so-called axial because it proved pivotal to humanity. She makes this a very strong case that this is really the, she, she says it marks the beginning of humanity as we now know it. During this period, men and women became conscious of their existence, their own nature, and their limitations in an unprecedented way. Uh, it was during this axial age. She defines it as the uh, the years between 800 and 200 uh, before BC, before the Christian era, 800 to 200. And this is this was the time, of course, of the Buddha, but also of Confucius, Lao Tzu of these Confucius of of. Uh, Confucianism, Lao Tzu of Taoism, uh, Zoroaster, uh, Socrates, and Plato. These were all uh, contemporaries of Siddhartha or uh, near contemporaries. It was a time when everyone was questioning, at least in these three areas. She, she, uh, she points out that it seems to have been Limited this axial age and the enormous turning uh, of uh, world thought. It seems to have been limited to uh, India, China, and Iran. And, and, and it was marked by uh, questioning, um, looking deeper into things, not accepting the traditional creeds. Uh, 
She says that this axial age remains mysterious. We don't know what caused it, nor why it took root only in those three areas, China, India, and Iran. But it was also marked, she says, uh, by a general uh, a conviction that the world was awry. That, um, she says, people were consumed by a sense of helplessness, were obsessed by their mortality, and they felt a profound terror of an alienation from the world. You know, without without their gods, she says the world had become a frightening place. The sutras speak of the terror, awe, and dread that people experienced when they ventured outside the city and went into the woods. Nature had become obscurely menacing. She says that uh, Siddhartha did not leave home to commune happily with nature in the woods, but that he experienced a continuous fear and horror. These are in quotes. These words are in quotes from the sources she uh, researched. If a deer approached, or if the wind rustled in the leaves, he recalled later, his hair stood on end. Wherever they looked, the axial sages and prophets saw exile, tragedy, and dukkha. Dukkha, remember, is uh, the first of the Buddha's Four Noble Truths, wisely defined as uh, uh, suffering, but also dissatisfaction. Again, malaise, anxiety, a fundamental anxiety, fear, frustration. And all of the Buddha was part of this, this world and at this time. Uh, you could say that today, uh, in this country, um, we are faced with the basic issue besides all the universal issues of of uh, our mortality facing our mortality knowing that we're going to die someday in this country there is this and not only our country uh, the, the whole matter of truth what is truth what's true what facts can we rely on do we have no shared facts? What is truth and what is what is trust? There's a, there's a, these two things, truth and trust. Trust in our institutions. Trust in others. I see these two uh, as really um, setting us back into... Uh, uh, 
state of, of real insecurity. The Siddhartha uh, was reportedly uh, a kind of a prince. His father was a, an aristocrat. At that time, uh, India, as we know it, uh, didn't exist uh, as a nation state. It was uh, just a uh, hodgepodge of different little republics, and one of which uh, the Buddha's father was uh, a king or the, the head head of it, the chief of this republic, and so he was raised in a in a, in, in luxury. We're told, uh, but it wasn't. It, it was fine as far as it lasted. He had everything he wanted, but then he had the good karma to find himself. Um, at a loss and find himself uh, dissatisfied. Uh, I'll read more from her book. We are told that he was 29 years old. His father was one of the leading men of the Republic. Um, and he had a wife and a son who was only a few days old, but Siddhartha had felt no pleasure when the child was born. He had called the little boy Rahula, or Fetter. The baby, he believed, would shackle him in a way of life that had become, shackle him to a way of life that had become abhorrent. Even though his father's house was elegant and refined, Siddhartha found it constricting crowded and dusty. Those are, in quotes, must come from the old records. Crowded, dusty, a miasma of petty tasks and pointless duties sullied everything. Any, any of you householders out there, does that ring a bell at all? Uh, at all? Every once in a while? Feeling beleaguered by all the stuff we have to do to maintain a household and all the stuff we acquire. Does it ever feel like dust? So he, he, he found himself disillusioned with the householder life, family life. And so he, at the time, uh, the path of a wandering mendicant, a monk, monasticism, uh, was very much honored. And after having seen the old person, sick person, dead person, and really, really being shaken 
by the, in a way, the futility of finding anything that we can uh, rely on in this worldly existence, he decided to formally renounce uh, worldly life and family life. So he uh, cut off his long, beautiful hair with a sword stroke, and this is this has become uh, for those of us who are ordained and from centuries of mon monks and nuns. This has become a symbol of renunciation, uh, the uh, keeping the head shaved, and his first his first course, his first attempt at uh, coming up with answers to existence was to embark on <coughs> a path of asceticism, self-punishment. She has a pretty vivid uh, description here of the lengths he went to. That uh, She drew this, obviously, from uh, some original sources. He joined forces with five other ascetics, and they practiced their exacting penances together. Uh, during this period, Gotama went either naked or clad in the roughest hemp. He slept out in the open during the freezing winter nights, lay on a mattress of spikes, and even fed on his own urine and feces. Good Lord. He held his breath for so long that his head seemed to split, and there was a fearful roaring in his ears. He stopped eating and his bones stuck out, quote, like a row of spindles or the beams of an old shed. When he touched his stomach, he could almost feel his spine. His hair fell out, and his skin became black and withered. At one point, some... Oh, this is something about the legend about some god seeing him. But after after six years of this, you know, he was he was... A master of this, he was. The, he was said to have been men, a, a man of prodigious willpower, and he went as far as anyone could without dying. But then, he was on the verge of death. He collapsed, and he realized that liberation uh, would escape him. Of course, if he died. And just at this point, when he was near death, um, he thought back to a time in his in his life when he was a youth um, child, really, um, when he caught a glimpse of liberation. It was a, a work day. His father uh, had taken him to watch the ceremonial plowing of the fields. Um, all the men of the villages and townships took part in this annual event. So his father had left his small son in the care of his nurses under the shade of a rose apple tree while he went to work. But the nurses decided to go and watch the plowing, and the men, maybe, and finding himself alone, Siddhartha sat up. In one version of this story, we're told that when he looked at the field that was being plowed, he noticed that the young grass had been torn up and that 
insects and the eggs they had laid in these new shoots had been destroyed. The little boy gazed at the carnage and felt a strange sorrow, as though it were his own relatives that had been killed. But it was a beautiful day, and a feeling of pure joy rose up unbidden in his heart. And uh, here's the quote from one of the early accounts. The child had been taken out of himself by a moment of spontaneous compassion when he had allowed the pain of creatures that had nothing to do with him personally to pierce him to the heart. This surge of selfless empathy had brought him a moment of spiritual release. This is a very important point uh, in terms of the teachings of the Dharma. When he had allowed the pain of creatures that had nothing to do with him personally to pierce him to the heart. In a recent Teisho, I was trying to make the point that this is the opportunity that we all have now uh, with the worldwide pandemic and all of the accounts of terrible illness and suffering and death, this is the opportunity we have to really face this first of the Four Noble Truths, that suffering is pervasive. But this experience of the, of the child, the young Siddhartha, uh, strikes me as some kind of a, it was a samadhi uh, experience, it seems, but what we can tell that um, it's, a, it's an experience of rapture, of, of rapture of, of no self, of unity that stuck with him. And at this crucial point when he was uh, nearly dead, from his ascetic practices, it came up, this, this memory, and buoyed him. All of this as he was sitting in the shade of a rose apple tree. I suspect that many, many of us as children had a similar experience at least once, but who would know? Um, I did, um, sitting, or, or sleeping. Uh, we had been put to bed. My five sisters and I had been put to bed uh, up in um, this kind of it was the attic, I guess. It was. Uh, we were all parked up there to sleep, and um, it was a. Uh, it was an early evening in the summer. Um, I could hear my father um, mowing the grass in one of these old real moors. And there was some, was, there was no compassion involved. I mean, there was no suffering. Uh, so in that sense, it's quite different from Siddhartha's experience. But there was this this uh, overwhelming feeling of of oneness and love. I I uh, remember 
um, looking over and seeing my sisters sleeping there. Uh, they must have been, I don't know, five, six, four. Uh, and just their beatific faces in sleep. It had, it, it, I, I still almost get choked up just remembering it. Back to the Buddha, back to Siddhartha. He was uh, ready to, ready to die, and just then, we're told a maiden from a neighboring village, her name was Sujata, came to him and and offered him a bowl of milk rice. Uh, and this I see as uh, representing uh, how helpful Sangha is. That uh, in, the, in the deepest sense, none of us can do this alone. Yes, we may be on our own individual journey. We can even be in solitude when this happens, but there is this great web uh, of support. Even these these uh, monks in China who would spend 30 years in the mountains, they, they had patrons. They had they had uh, um, lay people who would who would provide for them, bring food to their caves or their huts. I think it speaks to uh, the the interdependence of all things. And uh, his five ascetic disciples, who had been in such awe of him for his willpower. Uh, when they saw him take this milk rice, they spun on their heels and left him, uh, thinking that he was beyond hope. And then there is this uh, this part of the Enlightenment account where, uh, and this is uh, definitely the mythology part of it, where <coughs> where the Buddha. Uh, tossed his begging bowl on the on the onto the swirling surface of a river, and uh, and uh, it went upstream, upstream this bowl, and then sank down, spiraled into the chambers of this um, this. It, it came down and and came to rest against a long line of similar bowls. And, uh, and this uh, tells us that uh, the Buddha, Siddhartha wasn't the first Buddha. Uh, there are some numbers of, of, of what we call prehistoric Buddhas, those who we, we uh, don't know anything about. But the larger point is that enlightenment is not something that he discovered alone. That it's it's open and has always been available to human beings. There's this uh, thing in the in the account about how uh, uh, when he decided he had to sit down, cross his legs, he was offered. Uh, eight bundles of freshly cut grass uh, by uh, 
uh, a, a gra- a, the local grass cutter gave him this to serve as his mat and cushion for his meditation. Another, this I see is another example of of sangha support, the support of others. And then came his commitment, which he announced under the Bodhi tree. Though only my skin, sinews, and bones remain, and my blood and flesh dry up and wither away, yet never from the seat will I stir until I have attained full enlightenment. Ugh! Absolute con- commitment. Whatever it takes. However long it takes. This is this is a hugely important uh, point in anyone's spiritual journey when you reach this whatever it takes. And we're told uh, he was confronted by all kinds of images and thoughts. Uh, seductive makyo, makyo is the Japanese word, uh, side effects of sitting, intense, intense sitting, where he was um, faced, had to face down uh, seductive calls to rest and relax, but uh, he wouldn't have anything of it. And then Mara, the uh, mythical Satan of Buddhism, Mara himself approached Siddhartha sitting there and uh, and then pulled out his heavy artillery to get Siddhartha to back off. He said, are you sure you can do this? These are my words. Are you sure you can do this? Really? Really? Do you think you have it in you? And Siddhartha just sat there unyielding. We're told that he uh, displaced his hands <coughs> to the earth to have the earth witness for him. Um, <coughs> uh, and then there's this where this sort of confirmation that he, after spending lifetimes of compassionate service for others, following the path of the Bodhisattva, uh, he had evolved to the point where he is worthy of full enlightenment. By the way, there there are accounts that uh, that he had had previous uh, Kensho's, uh, lesser experiences of awakening before he crossed his legs under the Bodhi tree and came to his supreme perfect enlightenment. We'll never know about that for sure. And then he he went on and on on and on until uh, according to the story he glanced up at the morning star that the planet Venus and complete awakening burst upon him 
And he cried out, wonder of wonders. Fundamentally, all living beings are Buddha. Buddha, the word Buddha means enlightened one or enlightened awareness. So fundamentally, all beings are enlightened, endowed with wisdom and virtue. But because our minds have been, because of the conditioning, our false conditioning of our minds uh, and our delusions, we fail to perceive our own original enlightened nature or that of others. And this, this, in my experience, is what it all uh, comes down to. Um, when, when I've been asked at introductory workshops, mostly, when I've been asked what enlightenment is um, or what it revealed to me, the best answer I've ever come up with is it reveals that we're all originally enlightened. We're all the same. We have all have this luminous mind of enlightenment. It's confirmation. What a what a life changing thing it is. You know, Roshi Kaplow used to talk a lot about enlightenment, coming to enlightenment. And 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 that has um, value to it. That's why uh, that's what I remember most from the three pillars of Zen: reading the Enlightenment accounts. That's what galvanized me uh, to to turn completely to uh, to Zen practice, Zen training full time. Um, but it's a tricky thing. Uh, in this country, I don't know. Maybe it doesn't have the, the same problem in uh, in East Asia, Japan, Korea, and, and and China. It's it's always this risk with Americans or maybe Westerners, this risk that if that if you talk about the awakening, awakening, that people will feel themselves inadequate. People who haven't experienced awakening. It will it will exacerbate their delusion that they're not fundamentally enlightened already, and also there is this. I think we've seen this here at our own center, where the more this is a something in, I've read just more broadly and as a psychological uh, proposition with with us human beings that the more emphasis you put on a goal the more likely it is that you'll quit your work, your effort, after reaching that goal. So Roshi Kaplan put a lot of emphasis on passing your first koan, having that first, um, entering the first gate is what the Chinese call it, that first experience of uh, seeing the formlessness of form. And, uh, but I think that is dangerous to put so much emphasis on getting through your koan because it's, it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. 
is just lifetimes of work after that. It's, it's, it's significant in that to the degree that it's a, it's, it's a real breakthrough, uh, then it fortifies one's faith uh, in this true self that is no self. But there is still so much work afterward. When uh, Roshi passed me on the Koan Mu in 1975, I think, it took me uh, three or four years working on Mu. Um, and it, it felt different. It, it, uh, things were different, but in a pretty subtle way. It's almost hard to describe how things were different. It just, I felt lighter. Um, it was uh, now, looking back on it, it was, it was uh, having, having to a very small degree, having seen uh, into the, uh, yeah, the formlessness of form, the world, this, this world of phenomena that is the only world that most people in the world know that uh, this is just um, fundamentally empty. So I don't know. I can't explain it. It was a relief, a little relief, but uh, the big relief, the big change for me was almost 20 years later after passing my first koan. 18, 20 years later, I was in uh, Mexico, uh, actually leading a sashin in Mexico. I was already a teacher at that point. And uh, my mind turned toward the question, who am I? Uh, it, it turned there as a result of having done a few months of intense psychotherapy. I was trying to... Uh, look into some unresolved emotional issues. And uh, it, I found myself um, completely in the grip of that question, who am I? And in something like three or, three or four days of the session, everything opened up in a way that it hadn't when I passed Mu. I've never talked about this in Teisho, at least not at all this explicitly, but I thought this morning, why not? It, it doesn't... The fact that this awakening experience, this deeper awakening experience happened to me, it doesn't mean I'm anything special. It's open to anyone. And my concern is that over the years, too many people have, have put awakening as something unreachable. And it's not, it is not for anyone. After, after this experience, well, I was flying home from Mexico and uh, the people in the plane were like phantoms. 
They, they were there, but not there. Somehow the, their, well, it was, uh, I later read, uh, some reference in a, in a book on Japanese Zen, but there's this saying that after Kensho, one's skin tingles for two weeks. And I thought that's exactly how it was. This, this seeing people as there but not there, this seeing them as sort of like phantoms, this dual vision, uh, then on time it morphed into, um, well, this, the dual vision uh, became just simple seeing people um, as the same as before, but different. It occurred to me this morning that it's rather like um, what happened uh, a couple of years ago. I had a, a little um, visual uh, episode. Um, it, it's called a um, posterior vitreous detachment, where one morning I was uh, looking into the sink and uh, the white sink, brushing my teeth or whatever, and uh, there were these floaters, little fibers, also flashes of light, uh, which I've learned can be quite uh, significant, quite dangerous. But anyway, these uh, fibers, um, and uh, well, all all was well. It was no, no lasting effect of that. But the uh, the uh, ophthalmologist. Uh, said a couple days later he said well you know this will this will correct itself uh, uh it's just you just will stop seeing them these these extra things in there and that that i think is a pretty good example of how things then return to a new normalcy after kensho you don't see i don't see phantoms anymore but, and yet, I know, I know that there is no, this, this true self that is no self. There is no fixed, permanent self of any substance. And this is the greatest, greatest hope uh, available. This, not just next to hope, is truth that we're not stuck with a self. And yet we do have to contend with habit forces, <coughs> uh, reactive tendencies, even after awakening. The, uh, uh, is a saying in Zen, the wind, the wind ceases, but the waves still surge. very important point is that how important questioning is <coughs> maybe not essential uh, but I think this is the element that uh, we don't see explicitly explicitly in the accounts of the of the Buddha 
at least the one that I read uh, for the ceremony. Um, but, but he was questioning, what is this? What is truth? What is reality in his own way? And, uh, and that's what kind of turbocharges whatever aspiration we have uh, to uh, move, to evolve beyond our current kind of perception. It's the questioning that is so helpful. I'm going to close uh, by reading uh, just a bit, a very short bit from uh, the Enlightenment account of Roshi Kaplow's uh, wife in Japan, his wife at the time. Her name was Delancey. Um, I fished this out uh, because I, it's just so captures in words um, what is hard to find for me, uh, but matches my own experience and it can match anyone's experience if they put their mind to this. This is at the... Um, she wrote, the, 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 the following words can only hint at what was visit, vividly revealed to me in the days that followed her Kensho. This is in the Three Pillars of Zen. Um, I'll just read, there are nine things she lists. I'll just read uh, three of them. The least expression of weather variation, a soft rain or a gentle breeze, touches me as a, what can I say, miracle of unmatched wonder, beauty, and goodness. There is nothing to do. Just to be is a supremely total act. Number six of her list. Looking into faces, I see something of the long chain of their past experience and sometimes something of the future. The past ones recede behind the outer face like ever finer tissues, yet are at the same time impregnated in it. And then the last of these nine the three of the nine, I feel a love which, without object, is best called lovingness. But my old emotional reactions will coarsely interfere with the expressions, still, still coarsely interfere with the expressions of this supremely gentle and effortless lovingness. So the honesty you hear there, she knows she's not done. Roshi Kaplow used to say, uh, Enlightenment doesn't transform us overnight, but it, tra it, it establishes the basis by which we can go on endlessly transforming ourselves. The basis of faith, of, of having confirmed and proved, even to the smallest degree, and, 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 and what I said about my own experience could, could hardly even count compared to what they say was the Buddha's supreme enlightenment. But it, 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 it fortifies us in a way that we can then go on forever deepening, enlarging, enlarging whatever experience we have. So long as we don't settle for um, whatever little experience we begin with, it would be the greatest, greatest tragedy to just think that's all there is. There's so much more. All right, I'll stop now and recite the four vows.